0: Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts.
1: The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX. Welcome back, everybody. This is uh, David Gallopo the uh, SDGX Texas Near Future podcast where we're really discussing about a lot of the new um, disruptions, new opportunities, new threats, what's going to be happening over the next five to ten years. And today we've got a special guest coming in all the way from New Zealand um, where we will actually discuss a little bit about New Zealand and the current situation right now. So I'll let Guy introduce himself, so I'll just hand over, and um, yeah, Guy,
0: how are things? (laughs) David, hey, great to see you, great to hear your voice, Um, and thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, So I'm in Wellington, New Zealand, the capital of little Aotearoa, New Zealand here, and obviously with everything playing out in the world with COVID, pandemic, um, everything else going on. Um, I, I feel very lucky and, and very privileged to be in New Zealand um, and thankfully due to really kind of early um, intervention and strong government leadership we're in a pretty stable and good place with COVID so I'm able to go outside and interact socially and do lots of lots of hangout things that I'm, I'm mindful that not everybody in the world at the moment is able to experience so great to be here and looking forward to our conversation.
1: How How is actually, I mean, COVID is sort of up and down around the world, it's, um, it's getting better in some places, it's getting worse in some places, but how is it really impacting I mean, your day to day, what you do?
0: I think if you just look um, at the kind of New Zealand domestic level, um, the impact isn't much at the moment. I think, you know, early on, uh, kind of April, May, We went into lockdown, full lockdown, like everyone else. And we've had a couple of, um, I guess, escalations since where the country's gone back into a very temporary and small phase of lockdown. But otherwise, um, we've been mostly able to move around, um, you know, still wearing masks and and a small degree of social distancing, but otherwise we're able to do large scale events in the country. I think, you know, we've had big events at stadiums with tens of thousands of people. there's been a, I think most of the disruption is really the fact that borders are, have been largely locked off. And so that's had a, a, b- a big impact for the country in terms of you know, the impact on tourism, which New Zealand has been very dependent on traditionally, or, or some impacts on trade. But otherwise, in terms of day-to-day life, you know, as New Zealanders, we've got things incredibly lucky at the moment. We are able to to move around, socialize, um, explore the country, um, and in the most part, do most of, if not all of our day-to-day work.
1: I I had the privilege of uh, joining your event last year. Um, Tell tell us a bit about the event, but also tell us what's gonna happen this year.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So, I guess in the context of that um, 10 years ago uh, i had a had an idea i could see um, all of the incredible creativity and potential of young people around me when i was studying at university but at the same time became increasingly aware of a lot of the, the global issues that we face around climate change the huge inequality that exists in our world you know the list goes on and i just thought Imagine if we could tap into that incredible creativity, the optimism, the enthusiasm, the energy of young people. I thought, imagine if every young New Zealander unleashed their potential to change the world, what would it take to make that happen? And so that is kind of a big, bold vision that has got me out of bed every day for the last decade. One of the things that we do is run an annual summit called Festival for the Future. And last year when COVID did happen and we did go into lockdown, we transformed what's traditionally an in-person experience into a virtual summit. Um, you know, we built relationships with some amazing organizations like the Obama Foundation, the United Nations, um, Global Change Makers, yourself. Um, we ended up having people from 57 countries around the world join us. Um, And, you know, what what completely blew me away in terms of um, quite a global experience. Um, And I guess that's what played out last year. Festival for the Future is one of the kind of the big flagships of what we do as an organisation. But we run a few other things. We run something called the Impact Awards, which gives out $30,000 in prizes to young people doing great stuff to make a difference for our future. Um, we run a year-round leadership development program particularly for young people in rural and provincial communities and then we run a, a social enterprise speaker bureau that represents top talent and puts um, profit back into scholarship opportunities for young people so that's kind of our um, our, our portfolio if you like within inspiring stories with a big bold vaz- vision to back young people to change the world this year 2021 is obviously quite a different year um, as we're all kind of figuring out getting through COVID. Um, for us, our Festival for the Future has just been announced as one of the opening events for a fancy new convention center in Wellington and New Zealand um, in 2023. Um, and so there's a large kind of in-person component, but also very much looking to build on the online and virtual experiences that we prototyped last year. So, you know, very much looking to build on the the global conversation Um, and festival is very much uh, a showcase, if you like, of leadership and impact, uh, leadership and innovation for impact. And so really bringing together a diverse range of different leaders, entrepreneurs, innovators to explore some of these big issues that affect our future, um, to put a, a real showcase on what's possible um, and to support the, the conversations around where, where could we or should we go from here?
1: Well, that sort of, that sort of ties into exactly the sort of area I wanna talk about, sort of the future of leadership. And clearly I'm a little bit older than you and I grew up in this sort of era where the, the Harvard masters were coming up with this sort of managerial theory and strategy and how that was going to sort of lead the world it really was built on specialization and not so much on generalization Um, it was really built on shareholder value profitability efficiency effectiveness these types of concepts um, on the way that businesses should be run and then we've seen how that's been now sort of what translated over the last 20 years towards public sector the public sector should be acting more like private sector in in these types of things. But now we see this huge transformation, not only the digital transformation and industrial revolution 4.0, we are seeing a mindset transformation that's happening right now. I think partly because of the concept or the framework of the UN sustainable development goals, the SDGs on one side. So we have these concepts about green economy. We have the concepts about sustainable capitalism these types of things on one side, but we're also seeing this big burst of innovation, entrepreneurship, specifically around social entrepreneurship. So these types of concepts, and where do you think, I mean, what is sort of the, where do you think this is actually gonna go? Because I see a lot of the old stalwarts, sort of the old school trying to hang on as much as they can and not be giving the space to a lot of the younger leaders who really come up, specifically in, pro- in public sector. But I'm yeah. seeing this where there's a lot of resistance where this transformation. What are you seeing on this?
0: Oh, that's a big question, where are we going? I mean, in, in, in every way, um, change is inevitable, you know, and it's just kind of where we go and how we get there. I think, um, you know, as soon as you start learning about a lot of these big, complex social and environmental challenges that we face, You can't not be aware of that stuff, you know, and I think at least for my journey as a young person, when I learned about climate change and the kind of the potential implications for my future and my kids' future, I found that stuff super confronting and overwhelming, you know, to the point where the the career that I had been considering was just like, actually, I don't want to go down that path anymore. You know for me my passion was entrepreneurship was design was creativity what could i do with my limited time and energy to try and make a difference for our future that for me that was my kind of that was quite a confronting moment when i was just coming out of university and i see hundreds and thousands of young people having similar experiences where these challenges that we face are more visible than ever before Um, and I think at one end of the spectrum, that can be really um, it can be really overwhelming and disempowering. And so, actually, the need for hope, the need for optimism, the need for leadership um, has never been greater. And I think the challenges that we're wrestling with are global and are local, and there's huge complexity within that. You know, there's all the capital required, there's the right kind of leadership and mindset required, there's there's considering it's considering the short term versus the long term. And I think especially for like a lot of our governments, be they local governments or central governments, they're not necessarily set up to deal with this kind of complexity. And I think the solutions that we need will not come from any single sector. You know, this is not just a private sector thing. It's not just a capital thing. It's not just a policy or government leadership thing. It's not just a, a grassroots community action thing. Actually, it's going to take all of us from all sectors You know with new mindsets with new tools for collaboration with new resources for investment in those solutions and that's complex You know, that's that's trying to figure stuff out in a way that as a globe We've never really had to deal with this before Let alone collaborate and put in some cases quite urgent solutions in place and I think in some ways The pandemic of COVID has given us a glimpse in terms of, you know, what could a global response to urgent crises and challenges look like? Um, So I think, like, in terms of that mindset, in terms of the leadership, like in New Zealand, we've got a relatively young Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, um, and probably the most diverse government that we've ever had um, before. And, you know, there's, there's some challenges happening within central government that we still need to figure out and solve, absolutely, but in terms of that kind of really swift response to COVID, at least in the pandemic, that level of kind of swift political leadership has enabled us as a country to get to a much um, safer and better place. And in terms of how we kind of figure out that global response, like you say, you know, I think we've still got a long way to go. <laughs> and I think there's so many different perspectives and approaches across generations that for, you know, in many ways, you know, in terms of solving the climate crisis or addressing COVID, we, we have to figure this stuff out faster than what we are at the moment.
1: But how, uh, is that impacting across the universities specifically in New Zealand that, I mean, I, I'm teaching a course right now on sustainable public policy. Yeah. And, and it, it's at the university and the School of Integrated Innovation. So these are sort of new concepts. And these are, these are kids at an undergraduate class in their second year. It's a brand new yeah. program that's been put together. And besides taking sustainable governance, they're also taking artificial intelligence they're taking climate and green tech so they're taking a lot of these fundamental areas around traditional areas of sustainability but i find that a lot of people a lot of the students were crowding into my class because this concept of sustainable public service is really interesting for them and but i don't see that at a lot of universities they're really sort of going back to the traditional um, legacy sort of academic Um, programs and everything else. Are you seeing a shift? Are you working with universities to develop some sort of curriculum for this new leadership?
0: Yeah, so we work with the universities a little bit. um, And I think, I mean, even even in New Zealand, there's seven universities, you know, obviously hundreds around the world. But of course, it's a sector that has also been smashed by COVID, right? Like New Zealand's Mm -hmm. model of tertiary education is largely largely dependent on international students. And as soon as borders close down, those revenues take a massive hit. And I think, you know, with all due respect to our universities, um, I think they've been quite slow moving um, to take up opportunities to deliver learning and education online. Um, And I think there's definitely no shortage of interest and demand from young people in terms of leadership for sustainability or governance for sustainability. I think in many cases, our tertiary institutions have probably been quite slow to respond there. So I've been kind of seeking alternative ways of learning, connecting, growing. Um, And I think that's really interesting, you know, as soon as COVID hit and and the, the ability to study in person, at least here, and many other parts of the world, it's just not the same as it was previously. Immediately, you kind of go to other places online, you know. So, if you can get a world-class education from any institution globally, learning online, that's that's a super appealing prospect in this day and age. So, I'm not surprised that you're seeing um, a fair bit of demand in those spaces. I think. Um, you know, for us as a country, we're still very much figuring out what does that kind of real education for impact look like? In fact, our... Um one of our kind of big parts of government here that's focused on education is also asking the same question right now. So it's an important question to be asking, um, but also probably one that we should have been asking kind of five to 10 years ago and have mm-hmm. some solutions in place that were, you know, that could enable and support a digital first mode of learning and delivery as well. Um, but for whatever reason, we, we haven't been in that place. Um, COVID's happened, and now I think it's just accelerated um, the push to to figure out what um, world-class education through that can look like.
1: Well, I think I think it's going to be a big drive. I remember when I was with the United Nations, and you see the diversity of projects and the diversity of areas, folks, areas, thematic areas that they're working in, and quite honestly, if I had all the money, um, I would invest in education and probably political corruption probably these are probably the two areas that are really sort of hurting and I think on one side they're hurting the youth and creating that opportunities yeah. um, but they're also hurting you know equity um, inclusiveness um, these types of areas and everything else and um, and I'm the, even though we do a lot of other things I like to focus on the academic side because I think that's going to be the youth are going to be the ones that are going to drive this change. And yeah. unfortunately, the baby boomers didn't quite get around to it. Um, the millennials didn't quite get around to it. It's this this new generation that has grown up with the internet, grown up with a lot of these new technologies. And when And when you look forward, when you look at automation, for example, I mean, that's going to do a big hit on jobs. Uh, There's a lot of sugarcoating going on at the moment Um, saying, you know, as as old jobs get deleted, new jobs will be created. But the the latency, especially on the skills required for a lot of these new clusters of technology, um, there will be a latency. There will be a bit of a lag. Then we have the conversation around universal basic income, sort of a robot tax, how that's going to sort of come in to fill the gap. And certainly COVID is, is a great little Sandbox for looking at that with the amount of jobs being lost at the moment mm-hmm. um, and the opportunities going forward that um, where a lot of the students I think have the opportunity and are deciding to take a gap year yeah because they can't go to the school of choice because mm-hmm. of the limited mobility to take yeah. a gap year and maybe do a bit of volunteering maybe do a little bit of help look at impact look at some of these newer areas that don't have a lot of structure around them right now like impact yeah. Yeah, um, and I think it's a huge upside.
0: Yeah, and look, I think um, you know, in terms of education, and I can really only speak to to New Zealand's take on education, but um, the traditional bricks and mortar in person experience, you know, in some ways, there's that, that those in person experiences can be incredibly powerful. But I think that the model and the kind of the focus of education has to shift a bit. I think the, the notion of a career in the 20th, 20th century has changed dramatically over the last few years. I think that question around how could you position something like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals at the heart of learning and actions as a result of learning, right? So if you kind of think about global challenges, uh, local or global impact, and an opportunity to embed The learning about the global challenges with tangible examples to create impact in a way that is embedded through our primary school years. So every, you know, I've got a four year old kid um, who, who totally knows about some of these global challenges at four years old, right through to, you know, primary, secondary, into tertiary education, like Is there not a way that you can anchor education and learning throughout that whole spectrum of a person's development from child through to young adult? So that it's anchored around the sustainable development goals so that it still enables you to kind of work on real world meaningful projects that can create tangible outcomes. And along the way, you're you're building your teamwork skills, your communication skills, your problem solving skills, your critical thinking skills. You're also learning things like maths or whatever the kind of areas that you want to specialise in. But you can do that in a way that's actually woven around real world tangible projects for impact that can track, you know, outcomes against some of these global goals. I think that's where we need to shift um, globally as a model for education. And I think both the in-person and the online experiences that enable us to tap into a global community, learn, share different innovations and examples with what's working in different parts of the world. For me, that's really the future of education.
1: But how does that tie in now when you talk about leadership uh, capacity building? And uh, on one side, you've got the philosophy of leadership and then you've got sort of that movement of leadership, the sort of transitional movement that's happening right now. Whether yeah. it's going from national and being decentralized, going into very, you know, the smaller villages having a lot of auto- autonomy on leadership, or you've got the other side really looking at disruptive, being agile, taking in and, and uh, leveraging a lot of innovative techniques, models, approaches, and these mm. types of things. So, how does that tie into your capacity building for leadership? How do you see that? What are some of the key messages that you were trying to get across?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that kind of the real um, traditional approach to leadership is is probably one that's more kind of top down, command and control.
1: Uh, <laughs> I, I'm the boss, and you're not.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and we've I I think we've kind of um, evolved in some spaces to. You know, you don't necessarily have to be right at the top. It can be kind of grassroots, bottom up. It can be uh, much more distributed and self-organizing. Certainly, leading by example and just taking initiative. Um, and I think the like the why of leadership has just become more and more um, uh, connected with that idea of global challenges and and needing to rise to the challenges of our time. So, leadership in that context is a is a really kind of key message that we. See emerging and also one that we look to reinforce like you know something like the school strike for climate where you know uh, an 18 or 17 year old in New Zealand could see what Greta was doing globally on social media and thought oh maybe we should have a school strike for climate in New Zealand quick look around I don't think anybody else is doing that maybe I'll start one you know and so Tech and tools, initial small-scale turnout for the strikes, and then a few months later, with a little bit of support, the right people around it, turned out to be, um, for New Zealand at least, the second biggest civic action in history, with 170,000 people showing up in support. Wow! You know, I mean, 170,000 on global scale doesn't sound massive, but in the New Zealand context, proportionately, that's huge. You know, it's the second biggest civic action in history, and that was... Largely, you know, if not entirely, led by young people, completely distributed, you know, not much hierarchy. Um, but that why, that kind of that purpose, that core reason for doing it, for wanting to see action on climate change, that was the powerful driver and motivator that got everyone out of bed to, to turn up to show and support. What did it contribute to? Um, I mean, it's always hard to kind of pinpoint a specific outcome, but. In New Zealand, absolutely, now, you know, we have a, a Zero Carbon Act that's been passed into law. Um, we've got a Climate Commission that's been established that that conversation around, um, you know, both mitigation and adaptation around climate change is much more um, current and topical at both the local government, central government, and in the business community and investment community. It's hard to say, you know, if, if the school strike for climate, you know singularly resulted in all of that stuff but certainly it was a powerful contributor that elevated the need for action um, and built momentum around that conversation and i think what's beautiful of around that is that you know young people played such a significant role in sparking and driving that movement and i think time and time again if you look at you know other kind of significant social movements throughout history it's often young people who have had a real kind of key leadership role in that um, So I think in terms of like your question around um, how is leadership evolving, Um, you know, what are the key messages of the mindset? I think one thing that I'm really aware of is that we set up with a big, bold vision to back young people to change the world. Um, But increasingly, just recognise there is more and more and more value and relevance in building bridges across generations. You know, so Mm. actually every single one of us has a stake in the future. And if we ask ourselves, well, what does being a good ancestor look like? You know, most people would talk about wanting to leave this place in a better place than what we've inherited. Um, And I think for us, our work increasingly is trying to build bridges between the young and old and recognizing that, you know, some young people can have incredible ideas, energy, optimism, drive to make stuff happen. And if you pair that with the older generation, you know, who often, I guess as we get older, you know, we we accumulate wealth, we accumulate assets often. It's often um, our older populations that are in positions of power that control policies and legislation and resources. But if you can bring those groups together with a shared vision for what the future could look like, I think there's huge magic and opportunity in that.
1: I think that's a fascinating insight, actually, this concept of bridging. Because you do hear about the, the, the different generations and every generation has the role and responsibility. But yeah. you don't talk about that intergenerational sort of relationship um, between them. Who's doing the handoff? And maybe, yeah. maybe this touches a bit into you know, this concept of storytelling, and, um, and which I think is a very undervalued at the moment. I think I love storytelling. And you can't beat a good story. I mean, a lot of the stories are formulatic, They're <laughs> whether they're true or misinformation or whatever. But the ability to really relay what you're trying to say in a story, a narrative yeah. Yeah. Um, that comes across and cuts across all the generations or cuts across all the sort of the marginalized communities and everything else to be really a sort of inclusive in that. Yeah. and that, I think that's a powerful message. This concept of bridging.
0: Yeah, totally. And um, I mean, just on the storytelling front, like, you know, as human beings, that's how we've passed down wisdom and knowledge through generations, right? Pre-internet age, especially, is through stories. And how we've evolved as humans is is largely to act based on how we feel, right? So, like, things like um, the TED talk from Simon Sinek, how great leaders inspire action and start with why. You know, that why that resonates so, so powerfully with our emotional drivers, which then determines how and what we do to act. Um, I think stories and especially stories of hope and leadership and what's possible in this time are incredibly powerful and important in terms of the intergenerational bridges. Um, just, you know, one one quite cool practical example there with the Impact Awards, you um, know we give out thirty thousand dollars to young people doing awesome stuff um, across six categories climate inclusion well-being enterprise a local and a global impact award and one of the models that we made up around the award ceremony is that we'd sell tables for you know mostly to big big business and big government and organizations and people with purchasing power And they'd buy a named table, you know, the Deloitte table or whatever, um, but they'd only get half the seats at the table, half the seats we'd gift out to young people, our scholarship recipients (laughs) and our our young semi-finalists. And I can't emphasize just how powerful it was to have such a diverse range of, you know, CEOs, senior leaders from big business, big government at the same table with young people from, you know, sometimes marginalised rural communities or some of our most driven young change makers from across the country, just having them at the same table to share a meal, to talk about their aspirations for the future, to start to build on those connections. That was incredibly powerful. And I think there's so many other ways that you can build those, those bridges, you know, create opportunities where you do bring together young people and older, often kind of senior leaders, influencers, decision makers, to have a conversation around vision for the future, to have a conversation around values, you know, where we want to go, how we might get there, what could you bring, what could I do? Um, And and that, off the back of those relationships, I think you just get so much more possibility for kind of real collaborative action for impact.
1: I think that's where the so-called enabling space, just putting different minds, different generations at the same table, but giving them the allowance you know, sort of taking the agenda away, taking the bias away, taking the politics away. Just you know, let them have that conversation, where they can just have a, a free flowing conversation. This is the impact. This is for New Zealand, right?
0: The impact towards us, yes, yeah, so it's just, it's just New Zealand focused at the moment. Um, but, and you know, we built the we built the brand and the campaign off a marketing budget of like a hundred bucks. You know, and <laughs> you know, within two years, even within the first year. Um, We've attracted the top talent from right across the country, hundreds of applications, every region represented, incredible diversity and caliber of applicants. And then the award ceremony, which year one 2019 was in person. And then last year with COVID was online only, but bringing such a diverse range of young movers and shakers and older decision makers together. It's a, it's a powerful model.
1: How was, how was the alumni looking? I mean, you, you've been doing this for a while. So yeah. as, uh, as this goes on, I mean, are the alumni giving back? Are they doing quite
0: well? Success
1: stories are there?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, so so it's our 10th birthday this year for Inspiring Stories, right? So within that kind of huge Aotearoa and New Zealand focus throughout that time, we've got 10,000 alumni who have taken part in our different programs over the last decade. Um, collectively, we've put over 2 million into scholarship support for, for young people often from quite... Um, challenge backgrounds to experience what can be life-changing opportunities um, and then in terms of what alumni have, are doing or have gone on to do there's massive diversity in there right so we've got young people who maybe previously had never been on an aeroplane in their life you know at mm-hmm. age 18 go on with a within a couple of years to win the Prime Minister's Youth Award or we've got young people who have gone on to win you know major national awards or represent New Zealand on the world stage we've got young people who are who have started and are building purpose-driven businesses and social enterprises we've got young people who you know are running for local or central government um, in a place where no young people have traditionally run for council ever um, and are getting in Um, you know there's, there's there's massive diversity within the outcomes of those different alumni, but I think um, in terms of are they giving back? Um, you know, yes, some are for sure. Um, you know, and some might just be going to university for the first time with their extended family, and so just getting a, a tertiary education maybe for the first time, um, and are maybe just coming through that and are not quite in the place where they've got their first full-time job. But I think everyone's got a different means to to contribute. And give in different ways, whether that's financially or whether it's in other ways, through their time, through their expertise. I think, um, you know, young people especially um, don't necessarily have a, a huge amount of discretionary income, right? You know, <laughs> at least in New Zealand, if you do go to university, you're probably ticking up a pretty significant student loan to mm. do that. And, you know, the cost of housing is higher than it's ever been, cost of living is high. So, you know, so it can take a while just to get out of that, what can be enormous debt from um, taking up a tertiary education, just to break free of that debt cycle, let alone being in a position to give back. So that's where, again, like, What I do think young people can bring to the table in spades is that energy, the ideas, the optimism, the ability to kind of mobilize and get things done. They don't necessarily have heaps of financial resources, but if you can pair that with often that older generation who has accumulated wealth, who is in those positions of power, who can mobilize resources in a different way, if you can pair those things together, then that's a really powerful recipe for change.
1: How how has this whole thing impacted you? I mean, on one side, I would imagine you're very tired. On the other side, um, are you going to run for public
0: office one day, be the prime <laughs> minister? Or,
1: uh, I mean, what what, what, is, what is your aspirations out of all of this?
0: Yeah, so look, i um, been doing it for 10 years now, right? And, you know, that, that big, bold vision hasn't changed at all. One major thing that has changed is that I became a father. So I've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old now. So that means outside of work. Um, Life is pretty busy, a different kind of busy, but having to put kind of firmer boundaries around things and, um, you know, it's meant making sure that we've got a a team around us and we've got an amazing team and an amazing board. Um, We're set up as a charity, but we have to operate like a business before, uh, like a business and we've we've come a long way over the past decade, you know, through big ups and downs, just building a model that's much more resilient and financially sustainable. Um, And it feels like the last decade has been kind of prototyping a model for impact, at least in New Zealand, and now the next decade is thinking about scale. And so, um, I mean, last year when COVID happened and we had to transform our Festival for the Future into a virtual summit, to have people from 57 countries around the world engage was pretty mind-blowing, to be honest, like quite a different experience than the in-person event. But like, we had young people in refugee camps in Rwanda getting up at 4 a.m. to tune in and engage. We had people in Nigeria getting up at 2 a.m. We had, you know, young people across the Pacific. And that kind of, that, that experience blew me away, you know. I think it just got me thinking a lot more, like what we were talking about earlier in the conversation around... You know, what would a global ed tech model for impact look like? So in many ways, because festival was a virtual summit, we could also undertake our biggest scholarship program ever. Um, You know, largely as long as people have got access to data and a device, you can give a link and enable access. So I think where we want to take things is very much looking at that kind of EdTech for impact, technology enabled, scalable from day one. That might be year-round subscription model, but you can also run a huge scholarships program around it to enable access. That's probably one of our next plays, in addition to building on a lot of the really powerful in-person, face-to-face experiences, mentoring, leadership development stuff that we do. So, um, so, so. And, uh, Sorry, the oh, other piece of me is obviously thinking about succession, right? So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be around forever. So making sure that we design resilience and succession into our model. Um, will I run for public office? My, um, my, my wife and I have an ongoing conversation about that. Um, certainly not right now, but it's, it's, not, um, it's not a new conversation and something that I've certainly been asked about before.
1: Well, I think, I think public office... Authors-
0: I mean, there's a couple of
1: perspectives on it, and I think it's because of the national context, where sometimes the public office is the only good job out there. So you do have this drive towards, you know, getting into the public service. But I think on the other side, we are slowly, I mean, you you do see young governments out there, Poland, uh, Lithuania, Estonia, you do see young governments out there. But the transition time is going to happen, I think, over the next 10, 15 years, yeah. Um, you see this in America, you see this in, well, Canada did the transition with Prime Minister Trudeau, so we have a very young Prime Minister in Canada. Um, but we're starting to see in Europe and some of the other places where this transition is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the leadership mentality, which I think it is really around a mentality, I mean, the, the how to be a good leader is there. It's been written through stories, success stories, and the opposite all over the place you know, what to do, what not to do. The question is now the sort of space to do it and something like that. And I think I think public service has got a bit of a bad rap and, um, and, and I think it is the future when you start to look at, specifically now when we have this digital transformation, the internet was one thing, the internet relatively unsophisticated technology yet has caused this total disruption from the last 20 years, some positive, some negative, but now the impact around privacy, around rights, around these types of issues. Yeah. And I think Zuckerberg and the Senate um, committee meetings was a good example where a lot of the government simply don't understand the Internet. Yeah. So how, how are they going to understand artificial intelligence or genomics, uh, biometrics? I mean, how are they going to understand a lot of these very sophisticated clusters of technology coming down to us? And how are they going to write good policy for that? And I think there is a transition. So I think there's a transition coming in. I think you'd make a great prime minister. Um, (laughs) I, 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 I,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the really interesting opportunities with technology and governments is just access to that real-time data to inform investment mm. and decision-making and I think when you start to, you know you have the data points in place that enables you to overlay well here's the here's the kind of potential climate impacts in this particular ge- ge- geographic location overlaid with here's some of the social inequality that exists in this community or access to education if, you know, if we're targeting outcomes and investments in a particular way, where's the opportunity for the multiplier effect through that investment and through those policy decisions? And I think, I mean, even with policy development, right, like the opportunity, so many of our policies in New Zealand here, right, uh, are often made, at least traditionally, by a, a, you know, a, a well-intentioned group of people who sit in a physical building, um, often <laughs> quite distant, um, from the reality of the people on the ground, you know, who they're really set up there to serve. And so the opportunity to utilise technology and data to actually engage local people on the ground in all sorts of different places and populations who are directly affected by some of those policy decisions to actually inform and shape some of those po- policy decisions and in some places co-design them with themselves. Like, I just think there's so many ways that technology can help to improve government processes, decision-making, investment decisions and Mm. you know we're definitely starting to see um, some changes in that space around New Zealand and um, yeah it, it just has so much potential moving forwards and feels like it's inevitable right and then I think next layer up is okay well what's the global data set you know how do we respond to some of these global challenges with all of our kind of private and public sector leaders around the world that technology has such an important role um, in how we tackle some of these global challenges as well.
1: Well, I think this is where, when you look through the whole conversation, it really is moving into the sort of hybrid sort of situation where the public sector is not the public sector of old, the private sector is not the private sector of old, and the civic sector is not. It's all sort of getting into a grey zone yeah. where you do have these concepts like sustainable capitalism or a sustainable policy, where the concept is really going beyond national borders into these complex areas like climate, for example, or inclusiveness, for example, you know, leave no one behind. Everyone gets included. Um, These types of concepts. And it needs a bit of a hybrid sort of education behind that. Um, Ones that can sort of understand um, business modeling on one side, but also what is the new social contract? What is that? How is that being redesigned and redeveloped, rethought about, reframed in this sort of sense? Um, so it's, it's a fantastic opportunity uh, where it is right now. And I, th- I think you've done some marvelous stuff, really have. I mean, I've been watching you, but I certainly go online and see the different things that are happening. Leadership is in demand. I mean, the hunt for strong and, and viable leadership is really in demand right now.
0: Yeah. And I think like the intersection between, um, you know, data, technology and leadership, like you can, you can be a leader or have a leadership team sitting there with all the data in front of you, right? But, and if you can see through that data that actually this proportion of the population is going hungry every day or mm-hmm. this proportion of the population does not have access to housing. Um, And therefore, here's the knock-on effect of that across generations and in the wider community. If you're a a leader or somebody in a leadership position and you see those aggregate data sets in front of you, you also need the empathy, you know, you need the mindset, you need the willingness to kind of um, take risk and deploy capital or resources in a place that can actually alleviate some of those challenges. There's a lot to be thinking about and considering. You know, and you need to be thinking about the potential impacts of that, both in the short term and the long term. So I think, there's, you know, the, the, there's a lot of demands, like you say, for great leaders, but also a lot of complexity for leaders to navigate in this time as well.
1: I mean, I'll, I'll leave the last statement up to you, but one last thought. I, um, I've, I've been doing a lot of research in this area, but I just gave actually a lecture on algorithmic government. So government being actually managed and everything else by an algorithm. And there's a couple of examples of this, actually, in Japan, where a person was actually, a, he was in actually the role to run um, as mayor of one of the cities there. And he was only a proxy for an algorithm that he was actually prop- uh, proposing that his algorithm would manage everything. Wow! And so, and there is, and there's also, there's been um, examples in um, the U.S. as well, this concept of having an algorithm actually governing. Um, and it's a really interesting concept actually. And there are examples of this going in this direction. We're really relying on a good insight and a balanced analysis of data. This, this huge amounts of data that are being generated. Um, and now with IOT and everything else will be even more generated as well. So, and it has a big impact on uh, energy consumption, efficiency, supply chain management. These types of things on one side, but also, again, getting into what is the well-being of society and how can you measure that, um, the well-being of society. So it's an interesting concept. But anyways, but I'll hand over to you to close up with the, the, your final statement. What is the wish going forward or what do you want to say <laughs> on your final statement as we're running out of time here?
0: so oh. Final statement, um, interesting in terms of an algorithm running government, I'm not sure that I'm 100% behind that. I actually had a dream last night that I was being chased by drones. That's, that's another story. <laughs> when algorithms might go bad. Um, one final statement. Look, I think, um, I think more than ever, humanity and, and us as a population on the planet, we're just more conscious of this one planet, this place that we all call home. Um, And I think really the challenge of our time and the opportunity that we have is how do we come together, you know, is where is that shared humanity to solve these big challenges that we face. And I think there's been all sorts of, yes, of course, um, conflict and turmoil throughout history, and we're still seeing it at the moment, but equally, There are times when people, when populations, when citizens and governments and businesses can rally together and create real change. And now is that time. And I think COVID gives us a very unique window to think about the world in which we're living, to think about the investments and the actions that we're taking for a a fairer, a more inclusive and a more sustainable future. And now is the time for leadership. And that leadership is gonna take all of us, not just governments, not just big business, it's you and I, um, it's all of us working towards that better future. So that's the one statement um, that I'll share in closing. Um, I believe we can get through this and I think we have to. I wanna be a good answer.
1: That's great and you're a great example of that. Okay, Guy Ryan, thanks very much. The Festival of the Future and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thanks, David.
0: Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts.
1: The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX.